Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with journalist Tracy Clark Flory. She is the author of the new book, Want Me, A Sex Writer's Journey into the Heart of Desire. Tracy is a senior staff writer at Jezebel, and her work has been published in Cosmopolitan, Esquire, The Guardian, Women's Health, and many other major media outlets. We're going to be talking about Tracy's extensive career in journalism covering the sex beat. Her career has taken her everywhere from porn sets to orgasmic meditation retreats, so she's seen and heard it all. We'll be discussing what she's learned from all of this, including what she's discovered about herself, as well as the current state of our sexual culture. This is going to be a super fascinating conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Tracy, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me. I've been reading your work for many years, and I'm excited to have a chance to talk all things sex with you. But before we get into specifics, I want to talk a little bit about your professional journey. I'm always curious to learn about people's career paths and how they ended up doing what they're doing. I know that for me, I never intended to become a sex researcher and educator. In fact, the very first job I ever had was as a film critic for the local newspaper in my hometown. So in the 1990s, I was hired to be a teen film critic for the Canton Repository in Canton, Ohio. And they paid me to write snarky reviews of movies like Spice World, which was (laughs) a lot of fun, pretty awesome job for a teen. And today, obviously, I'm still a writer, but my career is very far removed from where it started. And if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you know a little bit about my journey and how I got into the world of sex research and education. But Tracy, can you tell us a little bit about what led you to become a sex writer in the first place? How did this become the focus of your career? Sure, I'm happy to. Also, I I love hearing your origin story. That's a good one. I was just always drawn to the subject of sex. I mean, as far back as my college newspaper days, I was writing about pornography and sexuality. It was something that called to me. And I think Part of that was my having grown up in Berkeley, California, with a pair of, you know, hippie parents who were pretty open in terms of talking about sex and talked about sex in very positive terms. And so I think fundamentally, I I came from a place of feeling like, one, it was possible to build a career writing about this topic without being alienated from my family. So there was a sense of permission there. And I also think that that upbringing in a fairly feminist household where, you know, my dad delivered messages around sex, such as sex is like two star systems colliding in outer space, that kind of poetic, flowery vision of sex and sexuality. And that what I heard at home came up against what I saw in our culture at large. And, you know, I saw some contradictions there. And I think that like, that was part of the spark for me was this sense that, you know, there was more to the story of sex than what I was told at school, than what I was told at home. And it was just this kind of riddle that I wanted to solve. And so I just kept kind of down that path and 
journalism is a great, a great way to sort of, you know, pursue those kinds of questions, whether they're personal questions or, you know, questions that we all have about the world in which we live. And so I kept finding excuses to write about sex, basically, in my emerging career as a writer. And I did that enough that eventually one of my editors said, okay, officially, I'm going to assign you as a sex writer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing that. That sounds like a a fun journey. And I I think it's interesting what you said about how you felt like you had the permission Mm. to kind of explore this in your journalistic career given your your background and something I've noticed in talking to a lot of other sex writers and researchers and therapists is that they don't feel like they had that sense of permission and in fact many of them feel like they have to keep their careers secret from or separate from their families so let's talk a little bit about that and kind of how you navigated this in in your own personal life with your family being very open about your intimate life in the public eye this is something that i read about in your book want me so i read through it in preparation for this interview and there were several things in there that struck me and that i want to discuss but one of them was this story you told about how you were doing a reading from one of your stories about your intimate life in front of a wall of vibrators and your family was there listening. And then (laughs) afterwards you had this really revealing conversation with your mother and you learned things about her and her background that you didn't know about before. And it gave you some additional insight. So can you tell us a little bit more about that story and also just kind of how your work changed the relationship that you had with your parents? Yeah. That particular moment, I was reading a personal essay that I'd written for Salon. I think I was a 23-year-old when I wrote that piece. And it was, the headline was something like, In Defense of Casual Sex. And it was, you know, it was was sort of a dispatch from a member of the quote-unquote hookup generation, because it was a moment where there was a lot of, you know, sort of hand-wringing about hookup culture that was happening at the time. And as a young person wanted to push back against some of that. And I did that in the form of this personal essay, which then ended up in the sex writing anthology and led to this reading at the Good Vibrations in Berkeley, not too far from my childhood home. <laughs> and so, you know, I told my parents about it and my mom's reaction was, oh, how fun, like what a hoot. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> she asked for permission to attend and then she asked for permission to invite all of her friends. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and many of those friends were what I would consider family because they were sort of always there, you know, as I was growing up and, you know, a bunch of Berkeley hippie ladies for the most part. And they were just so totally supportive the context, obviously, of, of reading in front of a wall full of vibrators and, you know, <laughs> with your parents present and your family friends present, I had an awareness in the moment, like, oh, isn't this, this is kind of outrageous. And at the same time, it felt totally normal. And so I think that's kind of the unusual backdrop that I had growing up, which was that, and that was partly that, that sense of permission where it's, it was unusual to do this, but it also felt like it was something that everyone could handle. You know, sex wasn't a topic that was off limits. And they really held space for me as a young person to be out there talking about sex and sexuality, even in a personal context. At the same time, 
my mom worried for me as a woman writing on the internet about sex and about her own sex life. And I think she had good reason to worry. She often read the comments threads on some of the pieces that I wrote. And there was a lot of vitriol, um, you know, that I tried to sort of laugh off and that she took very seriously and, and found to be very threatening. And in that moment, after that reading, some of that was exposed for me. We went to dinner afterwards and I could tell that she'd been really nervous for me ahead of the reading. And I kind of confronted her about it. And she said something along the lines of, you're so much braver than, than I was. And I realized in that moment how my being so public and talking about sex and about my own sex life, how that felt for my mom as someone who'd had her own experiences with being shamed around her sexuality. In her case, she got pregnant at the age of 18 and she grew up in the Midwest. My understanding of what happened is that her, her dad, you know, pressured her essentially into going away to what they called um, a camp for unwed mothers, which essentially <laughs> served as a way to kind of protect families from the shame of uh, girls getting pregnant outside of the context of marriage. And then she and she gave the baby up for adoption. And, you know, this was a pretty traumatizing experience for her and one that followed her around for the rest of her life. And my dad remarked at one point that, you know, because of that experience that she had with her, you know, the sort of consequences and shame around sex, that it followed her around for the rest of her life and that she felt sort of stamped with the scarlet letter. And so now here was her daughter who was making the scarlet letter into her career in a certain way, you know, like just <laughs> they're being very vocal and out there in public about sex. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm sure she never could have imagined that happening and, you know, her daughter mm -hmm. having such a different experience with all of this and, and also how the culture changed over time. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that, that story. It really stuck out to me. Uh, in the book. And I, I was really interested in the ways that you described your relationship with your parents and the ways that you've gone back and thought about things somewhat differently over the years and also how your career and being in the public eye along those lines has shaped that. And something else related to this that I wanted to get into since we're on the, the subject of your relationship with your parents is there's this other story you tell early on in the book about where you discovered your dad's porn search history <laughs> yeah. on his computer. And I think it's a really common experience for boys to find their dad's porn. Mm -hmm. And in my case, um, my brother and I found vintage porn in grandpa's basement <laughs> that one of my uncles had stashed away in a workbench. And that was honestly my first time ever seeing porn in my life. Mm. And it was a, a titillating experience. <laughs> and I didn't really think about it or analyze it beyond the fact that it felt like you know, I was doing something naughty and, and kind of exciting. And incidentally, they were all like vintage Playboy copies. And I was actually more interested in the articles than I was <laughs> in the photos at the time, because that was the first time I'd ever seen anybody like writing or talking about mm. sex. But anyway, it's just something where I'm thinking about the ways that boys might discover their parents' pornography. And 
you know, it's often a sexual awakening mm-hmm. or it makes like a funny story later. But your discovery of your dad's porn as a young girl was a totally different experience. Yeah. And I think that we don't often talk about the gendered ways that people might interpret that or experience that. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that if I'd encountered my dad's porn as a, say, a straight boy, my experience of it would have been so dramatically different. My encounter with his porn subscription, you know, it, well, one, it really felt in ways like it contradicted a lot of what my dad had previously told me in terms of his sort of values around sex. He'd often said things like, a woman's most attractive feature is her brain. And, you know, high heels are ridiculous. Shaving your legs is silly. And those were the values that that he, you know, <laughs> espoused in our household. And then I came across, you know, perfect10.com, which is rating women on a essentially one to 10 scale based on appearance. And, you know, how do you, I didn't know how to reconcile that he was privately looking at these images with what he'd said about a woman's most attractive feature being her brain. And so in the moment, it felt like betrayal because I felt like my dad had been telling me a lie. Now as an adult, I don't see it as a lie at all. I see it as that he told me a very simplistic version of the truth and didn't explain the full truth to me and and didn't explain how these two things could coexist, his Perfect 10 membership and everything he'd said about what he believed made, made a woman beautiful and lovable and all of that. So encountering this porn it felt to me like I, I sort of held out hope that there were men out there like my dad who thought that a woman's most attractive feature was her brain. And it felt like, oh, no, even my dad is this way. Even my dad values a woman's appearance over her brain. This is the truth about men. And so it felt, it felt like a moment of disillusionment at the same time that it was exciting to come across these images. And then I did end up poking around further on the website and finding images that I printed out and took upstairs to my bedroom. So it, (laughs) it was this, there was this, a lot of conflict there where there was the excitement and thrill and sexual discovery um, and the disillusionment and confusion. But I think for a lot of boys who are discovering their father's porn, it almost feels like this moment of initiation and invitation and, you know, that it can, you know, that it doesn't have that same degree of of, um, tension and contradiction. Yeah. And for the younger people listening, yes, we did use to print out our porn because (laughs) (laughs) our internet connection speeds were so slow and it would take forever for things to download. So, (laughs) you know, once you had the patience to let it download, you kind of needed to print it out to save time. And then Um, take the the stack of papers, yeah, up to your bedroom, (laughs) the black and white images. I mean, it was really, yeah, it was a different time. (laughs) <laughs> it was. And and I really appreciate you sharing that that story and, and that experience. And it's making me want to do a study on this topic because I've never seen mm. anything looking at how young people 
who differ based on gender and mm-hmm. even sexual orientation might perceive pornography that they find in the home that belongs yeah. to parents or other family members and what is the the psychological impact and in what ways did it play a role in shaping their sex life and so i i would love to to do that study or see that study at some point to have a sense of what does this look like on a broader scale? How common is it? And and what are the differences in that subjective psychological experience? Yeah, when I think it's so rich, it's so fascinating because finding one's parents' porn, I think, especially within the context of many parents not talking to their kids about porn or about sex, or that if they do, they talk about it in these very simplistic ways it can feel like this glimpse of a truth that's been kind of hidden from you. If there hasn't been that conversation in the home or if that conversation has been very limited, that moment of discovery can be really powerful in terms of giving a a glimpse of that something more, that your parents have this relationship to sex, to porn, that goes beyond what they have actually told you. Yeah. And I know this isn't the same thing, but it's making me think of Santa Claus and, yes. <laughs> you know, the way that we tell kids certain things that that aren't true, right. that we know aren't true because we want to shield them or protect them from the truth or because we want to give them this rosier version of reality than, than really exists. And when people discover the truth, there is often that shattering of trust that everything they've been told is a lie. And so, yeah, you know, Santa Claus is different from sex, but it gets to the same core of the idea of how truthful are parents being with their kids? And are we doing them a a disservice by, you know, not openly talking about so many things and by telling them intentional lies about a lot of these subjects? Right. Well, I think that parents and adults in general just discredit themselves from the very beginning around sex because, Young people are smart and perceptive, and they know when they're being condescended to, and they know when they're being lied to. And for me, like that was such a spark for me was finding, like, recognizing that and wanting to to just sort of to seek out the truth, like that feeling of being lied to, of there being hypocrisy and silence and you know, that, (laughs) if it hadn't been for that, I don't know that I would have pursued sex as a topic, you know, to base a career on. That was really what lit things up for me, I think. Yeah, I want to go back to something that you mentioned a little earlier when you were talking about your mother and she was reading the comment sections on these articles that you were writing and there was a lot of vitriol that was on there. I want to talk a little bit more about what public reaction to your work has been. I know Mm. that studying and writing about sex is inherently controversial. I can attest to that from my own career where I've been attacked on occasion on social media and in conservative media. And if you want to learn more about my experiences with that, listen to the previous episode on cuckolding that I did with Dr. David (laughs) Lay, where we talk about the social media firestorm in response to our research showing that cuckolding can be good for some couples. But <laughs> oh dear. I know that your experience is, is totally different with this because you're writing about your own personal experiences mm-hmm. and you're a woman. And I know that there are differences in the way that, and double standards in the way that we perceive 
men and women and, and talk about their sexuality in public spaces and including on social media and in comment sections. So what kinds of things have you encountered over the years and have you noticed any shifts over time? So is the vitriol decreasing or increasing or what's happening there? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard for me to assess in any kind of reliable way because the way that I approach internet comments in particular has shifted dramatically, which is to say, I don't read them <laughs> anymore. <laughs> and so and that's good advice. I don't do it anymore either. <laughs> yeah, I mean it took it took a while for that piece of wisdom to really take. I spent a lot of years at the beginning of my career in my early 20s um, where I was just compelled to read them even though it was a terrible experience. And so in those early years, the stuff that was being said in these unmoderated comment threads were, you know, just horrific over the top. I mean, just a total caricature of what you might imagine men, I mean, it was always men saying about a woman writing about her sex life online. And eventually, I learned to not read those comment threads, because they could just totally hijack my day, my week, my month. And once I stopped reading them, my, you know, then the sort of my availability to, you know, backlash mostly is limited to to Twitter and email. And I would say that in the last five years, I have gotten surprisingly little in the way of backlash. And in fact, when I've been the subject of backlash, it's often been around things that I didn't anticipate because I've written about so many controversial things and then I won't even hear a peep, but then it's the one thing that I don't expect anyone to care about that people get really mad about. But I just ignore, you know, that kind of troll online. And I I do believe that when you don't feed the trolls, you know, it, it does in some cases, luckily enough, at least for me, it dies down. A few years back, there were some, you know, men's rights blogs and pickup artist blogs that had started commenting on my personal trajectory as, you know, they they sort of studied <laughs> my personal essays over time and tried to sort of deconstruct my narrative and within this sort of pickup artist realm where there's this ideology about how, you know, the sexual marketplace works and everything and and they tried to apply their theories to me in a very um unfavorable way. And so I've had the experience of people at length really picking apart my life and my choices and making declarations about sort of, I mean, at one point there was a pickup artist blog that when I was, I was engaged and maybe about to get married, they had posted, you know, to Tracy's fiance, run, run far away. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's definitely been some, there's been some nasty stuff over the years, but I honestly count myself very lucky because I know a lot of feminist writers in particular who have experienced that on such a terrifying degree that I have not, luckily. Yeah. And I've heard similar horror stories from some women sex researchers who have received death threats, who have been stalked and harassed because of the work that they do. And they're not being open about their sex life. They're just 
publishing sex research. And even that in and of itself, when the research challenges conventional or traditional ideas of sexuality, there's often a lot of resistance that's encountered. And sometimes that turns into danger and harassment and all of these other things. And, you know, it's telling of the way that a lot of people view women and sex in our culture, which kind of leads into the next topic I wanted to discuss, which is you talked a little bit about some of these mixed messages that women are sent around sex. And a big theme in your book is this idea of sexual freedom and what it really means. And you talk a lot about this conflict that we hear and that we give all of these Mm -hmm. messages about girl power, but that's juxtaposed against all of these cultural constraints in pornography and in the media about how women are supposed to be sexually. So can you talk a little bit more about those mixed messages and how you think women today can navigate them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, one of the most powerful things when I was researching, doing research around this book was coming across contemporary feminist research around the evolution of of ideas around sexual empowerment and sexual agency. And Lena Bae Chung in particular has um, developed this theory about how in the 90s there emerged this neoliberal ideology that really emphasized personal individual striving and achievement and that there there's this way in which you know that was kind of taken up by this girl power message that really emphasized personal striving and was depoliticized and de-emphasized the need for struggle collective gain these things that had traditionally been definitional to sexual empowerment, the idea that sexual empowerment meant we are all struggling to change the context in which we find ourselves and we're all, you know, struggling for mutual gain, as opposed to this shift away from that kind of political understanding and and critical awareness to that lean-in style feminism that's very much about individual achievement and, you know, breaking the glass ceiling on your own. (laughs) And the ways that that intersects with sex, I think is really interesting in that Lena B. Chung argues that now girls' sexual behavior is judged by this new standard of sexual agency. So it's not just the virgin slut dichotomy, which is actually sort of shifted into this continuum where it's more ambiguous there's you know you might argue that there's prude is at the sits at the center that girls are navigating this this uncertain terrain more complex terrain now and in addition to that they can avoid those traditional judgments around women's sexual behavior by seeming to be in control and going after their own wants and striving and, you know, getting theirs. Like that there's this way in which portraying this illusion of of sexual empowerment actually protects against sexual judgment. And so coming across that thinking was really powerful for me because it, I see that as having been hugely influential for me in terms of how I approached sex in my teens and 20s. So I think, 
one of the major struggles for young women right now is that there is this narrative of sexual empowerment that's all about individual choice and striving that inherently just by that setup seems to imply that if you're having difficulties, dissatisfactions in your sex life, that that's your problem and your own personal failing, as opposed to this potentially being part of a a larger systemic problem. Yeah. And I think that's a really great summary of a really complex subject. And I think you really describe well how the attitudes and and cultural views have, have shifted and changed over time to some degree, but it's a new complex world in terms of women and sex and sexuality. And I I think you do a great job of discussing this in your book. And Peggy Orenstein is somebody else who I think also does a really good job of Mm. talking around these issues. And I often recommend her book, Girls and Sex, for people who want to learn more about kind of navigating that complicated landscape that's out there today. And we have much more to discuss, including some of the interesting places that Tracy's career has taken her. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Looking to boost your bedroom performance? Our friends at Promescent have you covered. Promescent has an extensive line of sexual wellness products, including a female arousal gel, libido-boosting supplements, massage oils, condoms, and much more. They also have a popular delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize this spray for your body to achieve the desired effect. And when used as directed, you don't need to worry about it transferring to your partner. Check it out and you'll see why it's recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals and has thousands of five-star reviews. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. They also ship all orders in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. My guest today is journalist Tracy Clark Flory, and we're talking about her new memoir titled Want Me. Tracy, your work has taken you to a lot of different places, including porn sets. So can you tell us a little bit about what being on a porn set is actually like. I think yeah. a lot of people, when they hear this, you know, they get certain ideas about what it probably <laughs> is like. But what was your experience like? And what are some of the things that people get wrong about how porn actually works? Yeah. Yeah. Visiting porn sets, I mean, that that has been some of the most powerful experiences that I've had as a journalist, because I grew up watching porn and I grew up with these assumptions about what what porn was, how it was made, how to interpret it, how to interpret its meaning, what it reflected about people's desires and stepping foot on a porn set and really seeing how that fantasy is constructed was eye-opening. You don't, as a viewer, see the, I mean, unless you're watching videos that do include this, which, you know, there are those, but often as a viewer, you don't see the negotiations around personal boundaries, around personal preferences and interests. You don't see the pausing to ask for lube. You don't see the, you know, at one point I watched as a a bottle of Cetaphil was brought out and was used to simulate ejaculate. And just seeing the way that, you know, and you don't, 
you don't know that when you see the final product that, you know, that this is that, that there's that element of, you know, illusion to it. But there's just really so much of that. There's seeing people who are engaged in a sex scene in a very intense way. And then, you know, cut is called. And then everyone's just joking around on set. And, you know, everyone's friends and or it's the moments leading up to when action is called and and everyone's just hanging out on on couches, like taking pictures of the cute dog that happens to be hanging out on set. You know, it's it's stepping foot on a porn set is to see that this is a workplace, to see that this is entertainment, that there is this this fantastical illusion that is being very intentionally created. And one of my favorite moments is actually a moment that opens the book, which was when I was on a porn set reporting a story and it was before shooting had begun. And the two male stars were just chatting about (laughs) girls these days, as they put it, but they were talking really about how so often what they perform on camera is not what they want to experience in their personal lives, that there's this huge disconnect between what they're portraying and what they find to be personally pleasurable or enjoyable, like that they are portraying this illusion of, you know, hot, satisfying sex, and it's an illusion for them, which isn't true for all performers. But I just, you know, that was so powerful for me as someone who came to porn as a young person with all these misconceptions. And then just repeatedly, every time that I actually stepped foot on a porn set, I had a lot of those misconceptions corrected again and again. (laughs) Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. And it's just has my mind spinning with (laughs) a lot of thoughts and questions. And, you know, I think in particular that that whole human element is missing from pornography. Mm -hmm. Everything you talked about with the discussion, the negotiation, the laughter, like so often with pornography, it's just presented as this very intense sexual experience where it's just jumping right into the action and it's nonstop action. And you Mm -hmm. don't know all of the other things that happened behind the scenes. An analogy I've made on a previous episode of the podcast is that when you're watching a porn clip, it's kind of like you're watching a clip from a cooking show where you're just getting that little highlight reel (laughs) and you're not seeing all the things that are happening behind the scenes (laughs) and all the prep work and all of these other sorts of things. It's fascinating to me. And I think a lot of people, when they would imagine like, what is it like to visit a porn set? They probably think everybody's sitting around horny and aroused and masturbating. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, that's not actually what it's like. It's just so not that. I mean, it's really, it is really funny where, yeah, it is, uh, you know, a lot of performers are their friends. There, there is just this very casual, friendly atmosphere that is not at all sexually charged, at least in terms of the the sets that I've visited. And so to me, that is a part of the sex education that I wish I had gotten as a teenager. I think if I, if anyone had bothered to talk to me as a young person about those complexities of how porn is made, how fantasy is constructed, it would have been really meaningfully illuminating for me. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about what you said regarding the performers who say that they're doing things or they're having sex in a way that they don't actually want to have in Mm -hmm. the real world. And so the performers don't really want 
to do this and they don't do it in their private life. But then the consumers of the porn are watching this thinking that that's what sex is supposed to be. And then they start mm-hmm. striving for this thing that the performers themselves don't even want right. or practice in their real life. And so who who is that serving in a way? Right. Right. Well, and, and and it's funny because that moment where I was on set with these two men, like they were, they were actually talking too about how in some ways they were a little bit baffled by what consumers wanted, like what happened to traffic really well on, on tube sites, for example. And so, you know, there's something really profound about talking to performers who are, who are performing this for viewers who ostensibly want this thing that they don't, they don't quite identify with. And I think the complex thing about tube sites, for example, is that it's not necessarily a straightforward reflection, I don't think, of people's desires in the same way that I don't know that Netflix is a straightforward reflection of people's true desires as much as it is a reflection of, you know, what people, what keeps people clicking and watching and, you know, engaged. And so... And also what just happens to be available. Yeah, right. And I think as a young person, like, you know, I I had such a literal interpretation of porn, not just in terms of if I saw a, a video on a tube site that was the most rated video, I assumed as an early 20 something, okay, this is what men want. <laughs> this exact video, exactly what's happening in this video must necessarily be a straightforward reflection of what men want. And now I understand that it's much more complicated, right? Yeah. And one other thing, speaking of porn, you talked in your book, I believe this was something you heard from talking to other adult performers. You told this story about how there are auditions for men for Mm. porn shoots and there'll be like a hundred men and they'll have to, you know, get erect in front of Mm -hmm. a public audience essentially to show that they can perform and have the stamina for an extended porn shoot and how in one case I think there were I think you said something around 100 men but only three of them could actually get erect Mm -hmm. so can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the unrealistic ways that porn shapes men's view of their penises and sexual stamina and you know what's actually happening behind the scenes there Right. Yeah, I thought that was really powerful. That was a conversation that I had with the director, Caden Cross, and she was talking about how years ago, before Viagra was so mainstreamed, there were these what she called cattle call auditions, where there would be sometimes hundreds of men. And really, I mean, that to me so powerfully reflects the fact that what they were looking for was something that was exceptional, which was a man who is able to perform under these circumstances. And so, you know, I think that basically what she described was like that maybe 1% of men were able to perform according to the the standards that, that directors and companies were looking for in that case. And since the mainstreaming of Viagra, as well as, you know, Caverjacked, which is, you know, an injectable, um, uh, I'm not, I'm the, the term for it is escaping me, but it's a vasodilator that, you know, allows you to have an erection on command by injecting the substance into the penis. And it, it works instantaneously, unlike Viagra and some of these other drugs, which take a certain number of minutes or hours to kick in. 
Yeah. And so now there are these additional tools essentially on hand to kind of reach that level of exceptional performance. But of course, a lot of viewers don't understand that there's all of that going on behind the scenes, whether it's that kind of wild selection process or whether there's the assistance of Coverage Act or Viagra. Many men are undoubtedly watching videos and, and assuming, oh, well, this, you know, this is normal or this is this is ideal and this is what's preferable and not really understanding what everything that goes into performing that fantastical illusion. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to put it. It is a fantastical illusion. And I think the story that you provided is another great example of how penises don't always do what you want them to do and they don't <laughs> operate on command unless you're, you know, injecting this vasodilator substance into it, which, you know, physiologically gives you an erection almost instantaneously, but also comes with some risks, including priapism, where you can get an erection mm. that doesn't go away and it lasts for hours and becomes painful. And it's actually a medical emergency that mm -hmm. sends some men to the ER because you have to drain the blood out. Otherwise you risk tissue death and, and potentially permanent erectile dysfunction. So yeah, it's a good example, good evidence of how what you see in pornography is not sex education and it's not a realistic model for understanding how the human body works or how sex itself generally works. Yeah, I wish that more people could could peek behind the scenes in that way, that more people would listen to porn performers' experiences of performing too. I think there's so there's so much educational value in just expanding the, you know, going beyond what you see on screen and looking behind the scenes of production. Absolutely. Now, your work has also taken you to other places, including an orgasmic meditation retreat. And <laughs> for people who might not be familiar with orgasmic meditation, can you just give us the quick summary <laughs> of what that is and tell us what was that workshop experience like for you? Yeah. So this was a workshop that was held by One Taste, which was a group based in San Francisco. They essentially got together with, there would be a woman who was unclothed from the waist down, and she would be rhythmically stroked by a man in a very particular way as a timer counted down from 10 minutes, I believe. And so it was this sort of ritual, this meditative ritual, all, you know, dedicated to the idea of accessing women's pleasure. In the years since I attended that retreat, One Taste has <laughs> encountered a fair amount of controversy where former members have come out and alleged that the group was cult-like, that there was all sorts of exploitation that was happening. And, but that, you know, that happened after I attended. My experience of attending was mostly what was profound to me was watching the women in the room who had paid half a grand to attend this retreat for a weekend that was all dedicated to women's pleasure. And what I saw was women who were just desperate for something more than what they were experiencing with sex. And when I, I visited for one day, and at the end of that day, after a bunch of different group exercises, it culminated in a demonstration of oming, where a woman 
got up on a massage table at the front of the room and was, you know, demonstrated orgasmic meditation and and appeared to be experiencing great pleasure. And looking around the room, I noticed that there were several women who were crying. They were crying. Um, they were so moved by the spectacle of this. And so that really, to me, drove home the sort of degree of desperation that a lot of women feel around their lack of pleasure during sex and, and the lengths that they're willing to go to, to in hopes of finding it. Yeah. And I think that is a powerful story and demonstration of how sexually dissatisfied and discontent so many people are and why people are willing to spend so much money on cures and enhancers for their sex life. And part of the reason for that is because they weren't given sex ed earlier in life and they weren't taught the things that they needed to know or should have known about how to experience pleasure. You know, pleasure is something that is notably missing in most sex ed. You know, they talk about the mechanics of sex and how to avoid risk and other things like that. But pleasure is so important in sex ed and it's just a totally neglected thing that we're expected to pick up on our own or to shell out extensive amounts of money for to take a private workshop. Right. And that also to me too seems like part of that neoliberal shift where it becomes all about that individual pursuit and where feminist notions have become kind of commercialized. And so now it's like sexual liberation for women, sexual empowerment is this thing that you buy. It's this thing, it's, it's workshops that you go to, it's studying up. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's like this job that you're supposed to take on as opposed to the more systemic stuff, like you're saying, sex education, the lack of the just fundamental lack of sex, sex education and that sort of thing. And so I think all of those commercial solutions tend to take us away from the real solutions. Yeah. I mean, honestly, what you're saying is that pleasure is a commodity. You know, it's something that we're trying yeah. to to buy now rather than actually you know, really learn how to do it and educate people in ways that can help them to to find that pleasure in their own life. Yeah. I mean, there's something so appealing about believing that you can buy it, especially when so many of us are uncomfortable talking about sex and really like sitting with it in an enduring and meaningful way. There is something really appealing about the idea that it's just something you can buy. Yeah. And the other thing I'm thinking about there is how some people use that in a predatory way, like when they... Mm understand how much and how deeply people want this and they want to access pleasure and how they're desperate for it and willing to spend large amounts of money that sometimes people are sold snake oil under the guise that it's going to be that cure or solution to their sex life and sometimes what they're sold is a, a product or a surgery or something else that actually ends up having a negative effect and causes harm for them for a couple of reasons, you know, sometimes it's a physical thing like a, you know, surgery or supplement or something like that, that ends up having a negative effect on their health because it hasn't been scientifically tested and validated and all those other sorts of things. But then there's also the psychological impact where when you get your hopes set so high on something and then it doesn't work, that disillusionment can be Mm. absolutely crushing and it can really Mm. devastate people sexually and also in their relationships. 
Yeah, it's tragic. It is. And so we've we've covered a lot of ground here, but we're running out of time. But there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is how all of these things that you've learned in your career as a sex writer and, you know, being open and publicly discussing these details of, of your own sex life and relationships, how has that impacted your own intimate life? So, mm. you know, what are the things that you've kind of taken away from that? Yeah, God. I mean, on so many different levels. Um, I think that, God, the, the just the the research, the stories that I've written all along the way have impacted my life. I mean, I want to think of, I'm thinking right now of many years back when I was <laughs> in this very long-term habit of faking orgasms. And Dan Savage had reached out to me and asked me for help in answering a reader question. And it was from a woman who was, I believe, stuck, stuck faking orgasms. And she was looking for advice on how to get out of that. And so I ended up giving advice to someone who was dealing with the same problem as I was. But through the process, I did some research and came up with the best advice I could. And that was advice that I then took myself to very positive effect. So there are all these ways in which writing about sex, pursuing different questions, being able to talk to, you know, the foremost experts in the world on these subjects, you know, pouring over research, all of that has just consistently impacted my own sex life. And also, you know, not just the foremost experts in the world, but just talking to everyday people has been incredibly powerful because I've realized that so many of us, if not all of us, are worried about being abnormal. We're worried that it's just us, that we harbor these secret fantasies or interests. And being a sex writer, I've just encountered so many people who are so relieved to be able to talk openly with someone often for the first time in their lives. And that's been personally very impactful because having that exposure to that, just that common experience around sex and shame has been very freeing for me over the years. Yeah. And I can relate to a lot of what you're saying in terms of the lessons that I've taken from my own research and the things that I've gotten from speaking with so many people about things like sexual fantasies. So thank you so much for this conversation and for sharing all of this wonderful information. It was really a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work and get a copy of your latest book? Absolutely. You can go to tracyclarkflory.com and also jezebel.com if you want to read some of my articles there. Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.